Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, thus far in our series, we've talked about, like I just said, the, the Red Sea, the Battle of Jericho, and the, the battle between David and Goliath. And as I was doing my reading in preparation for the series, uh, quite a while ago, I came across this great quote from a church father named Paulinus of Nola, and he sums up, really, our, our whole series up to this point quite well in this one quote. Now, so let me just share with you what he says. Human salvation is useless, and my strength lends me no strength if I lack the strength of God. What good was the boundless vigor of giants, or the kings of Egypt, or mighty Jericho? Their own inflated glory was the cause of death for all of them, and God's power broke them, not by the strength of heroes, but by that of the weak. The famed giant died like a dog, felled by a shepherd boy's sling. The din of trumpets shook down the famous city. The renowned and haughty king of Egypt lay dead on the sand of the shore, and the riches of the kingdom were equated with his naked corpse. So wherever Christ is with us, a web is a wall. For the person without Christ... A wall will become a web. So I think that sets the scene pretty well for us today as we move on to our last battle of the Bible and reflect on Elisha and the hidden angels. Now of our four battles, this is certainly uh, the least well-known. But like the other three, this is a fascinating story of God's strength and God's protection. And this true story uh, starts out as any good story does. By setting the scene. So we read from 2 Kings chapter 6. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So this prepares us for what's to follow in a few ways. First of all, it introduces to us all the key players. So the king of Syria and Israel, their armies, and then this man of God, who we will very soon find out, is Elisha. Second, it introduces the the physical setting, the, the nations of Israel and Syria, these neighboring kingdoms that are engaged in some border clashes against one another. But third, this also introduces the key theme of the entire narrative, that God always protects his people. The king of Syria takes counsel with his top military advisors, making plans to to defeat Israel. But no matter what strategy they devise, it never works. Because God's prophet can see their every move in advance and warns the king of Israel. And and the text tells us that by these warnings, the king saved himself there more than once or twice. The sense is that God's protection of his people through his prophet is this, this ongoing reality. Just as God's protection of us is an ongoing reality, we also can say that that we have been saved from evil more than once or twice. God always protects his people in ways seen and unseen. And we'll see this unfold a little bit more as we continue with our reading. 
And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So Elisha, by God's power, has been so successful in warning Israel of Syria's moves that the king of Syria can reach only one conclusion, that there is a traitor in his midst. His assumption is soon corrected, but I think this illustrates well the tendency of us sinners to turn on ourselves. Evil has a propensity to destroy everything, even itself. Like in the the movies where the bad guys seem kind of quick to dispense of, of their own associates and minions. Uh, this scene, by the way, the moral of the story, never Skype with Darth Vader. But it's not just the people that we typically kind of categorize as bad guys that are guilty of this. We in the church are actually, unfortunately, pretty good at shooting our own wounded, casting away those who've fallen into sin, maybe because we have this illusion that we are somehow perfect ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is not right. What can we do about it? We can recognize, each and every single one of us, that we are all at war with ourselves. That we are, each one of us, desperate sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of saving. And unless the king of Syria... (laughs) understood what was going on. He was, he was convinced that he had a traitor in his midst. But unlike the king of Syria, we do not have a traitor. Or unlike the king of Syria, who did not have a traitor in his midst, we do. The, the traitor is ourselves. Paul talks in Romans 7 about how we battle against ourselves on the inside. We all have this self-destruct button called, called sin that we tend to, to mash with unsettling frequency. The book of James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And on top of that, the enemy is also always coming after us relentlessly. This is the Egyptians came after the Israelites at the Red Sea. This is the giant challenged Israel. And just as the Syrians came after Elisha. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. 
And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So Elisha's ministry, Elisha's faithfulness, has put him in danger to the point where he is personally under siege. The king of Syria does not send a small detachment of soldiers, but rather an army with horses and chariots that is big enough to surround an entire city. All for one man, as if he's like the the Incredible Hulk or, or King Kong or something like that. And so Elisha's servant wakes up early in the morning, probably to, to get the coffee going, and, and he sees that his master and him are surrounded by soldiers who mean to do them harm. Now, it's not specifically narrated for us in the text, but I assume at some point in all of this, before he went with Elisha and the Syrians to Samaria, the servant boy had to go in and, and change his pants because he had probably wet them. Like the people of Jericho who trembled in fear at the Israelite army that had them surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, Elisha's servant is terrified and he asks his master, what shall we do? Probably asked that question before, haven't you? Can you think of an experience where your stomach drops just like the servant of Elisha had here? When you found out that a loved one had passed away unexpectedly? When you got the diagnosis, when you lost your job, when you learned about your your friends or your spouse's betrayal. Like Elisha's young servant, we all have asked the despairing and, and the desperate question, what shall we do? It's difficult in times like that to see anything but the armies that are surrounding you, ready to knock down the city gates and, and drag you away. But just as he did for Elisha's servant, God invites you to see at such times that which cannot be seen by ordinary human sight. Now that can be pretty tough. Kind of like these magic eye pictures that have the the 3D images embedded in them. Uh, You have to look just right to kind of see what's beyond the surface. And, And if you do that, if you take the screen up here and kind of hold it up to your nose and pull it back, you will see a dinosaur on the left and a train on the right. So uh, just trust me on that one if you can't see it. Well, as Elisha's servant stares in horror at the Syrian army, Elisha assures him that there is something beyond the surface. He says, do not be afraid. And will you read these words with me? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays for the Lord to open his eyes, and suddenly he sees the mountain on which the city was built was aflame with horses and chariots of fire, the army of the angels of God surrounding Elisha as a protective bodyguard. When I went to the Grand Canyon uh, a number of years back with our seminary chorus, our, our director paired each one of us who had never been there before up with someone who had. And then, um, so I hadn't been there before, and I closed my eyes, and my friend led me right up to the railing. That takes some trust, by the way, to let somebody do this. Led me right up to the railing, and then told me to open my eyes. And when I did, 
What a wondrous sight I beheld as the sweeping majesty of God's beautiful creation was spread out before me and kind of hit me all at once. I imagine that's something like what Elisha's servant must have felt in that moment. The servant's eyes were open to a deeper reality than he could see before. And the reality that he witnessed is just as real today as it was then. God's angels did not go into retirement after biblical times. Now as then, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. God's promise is that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. God's word says that his angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of us who are to inherit salvation. Martin Luther once said, where there are 20 devils, there are a hundred angels. And if that were not so, we should long since have perished. The church father Ambrose said, where there is faith, there is an army of angels. Elisha said, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God's hidden angels protected Elisha. And they protect you. And we have something even greater than Elisha. Someone greater. Someone as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Jesus Christ and in the power of his finished work for you, God has your sins hopelessly outnumbered. Sin, death, and hell tremble at the foot of his cross. Now, the truth that you are forgiven by what Jesus did there is not easily or usually seen in in the way that the world is right now or, or even in our own hearts and the way that we feel. But God has done what you cannot see. He has answered your question of what shall we do with what he has done for you. So let's all make it our constant prayer that God would open our eyes to see what he is doing, what he has done, that we may have that that kind of faith that the writer of Hebrews talks about when he says it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God is eager to answer such prayers. In our text for today, God answers three specific prayers of Elisha. The first is to open the eyes of his servant The second is to close the eyes of the Syrians, which God does immediately in response to Elisha's prayer. And then Elisha kind of does the the Jedi mind trick on them. You know, these are not the droids you were looking for. You know, follow me. And um, he marches them about 10 miles south to Samaria. And uh, then Elisha's third prayer is that God would open their eyes. Now, back in verse 15, uh, when Elisha's servant wakes up to Syria's army, uh, the Hebrew word hine is used, which means kind of behold. It's, it's, a, it's a word that really kind of indicates, hey, pay attention. This is really important. And so in verse 15, it says, hey, pay attention. This is really important. An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Well, in verse 20, this word is used again when the Syrians open their eyes and see that they are in the middle of Samaria, the the fortress-like capital city of Israel. It would be like disoriented ISIS fighters who, who kind of come to their senses and realize that they're in the middle of an American military base 
surrounded by their enemy. The servant of Elisha had been terrified until God opened his eyes. The Syrians were terrified after God opened theirs. It was now their turn to wet themselves. Because God had completely turned the tables on them, just like he did for the Egyptians at the Red Sea. You see, when the truth of God's power and rule over all is seen by all, it is always good news for God's people and bad news for God's enemies. This is true at the Red Sea, at Jericho, in the Valley of Elah, in Dothan and in Samaria, and in our own lives. God is the one who fights every battle, who wins every battle, and whose people share in that victory. In this case, the king of Israel shared in God's victory. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Now, I like how the king calls Elisha father here, not just because of the respect that it shows uh, to God's prophet, but also because the question that he then asks Elisha reminds me a lot of how my kids sometimes talk to me. My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Sounds a little reminiscent of, Daddy, can I have that toy? Can I? Can I? Now, the eagerness of Israel's king to execute justice on his enemies is, is not really surprising. But Elisha's response is, Elisha shows them mercy, these people that were coming for him. He points out to the, the king that the Syrians are prisoners of war. Because even though it it never really looked like it, this was in fact a battle that God had won on Israel's behalf, just like the Red Sea or Jericho or, or David and Goliath. Long before the days of the Geneva Convention, Elisha treats his captives with dignity, demonstrating to them and to their king that Israel's national security was grounded in Yahweh, not in military might or forces or strategies. So he sends them back to their king with this message. Isn't it comforting to know that this is how God deals with prisoners of war? Because that's what we were, all of us. Prisoners in the greatest war that has ever been. Imprisoned by our sin and locked away in darkness. But Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to captives like us and to set us free. Not to return to the prince of this world, because his rule over us was broken at the cross of Jesus. To return instead to God, our true master. And so we've been sent into the world with a message of of the victory of God and the freedom that he has won for everyone who trusts in him. As one church father reflected on on this passage and this reality, he was reminded of of the apostle Paul, uh, who was formerly known as Saul. And this church father, incidentally, is known as Ephraim the Syrian. And he says this, Such was Saul, the persecutor of the church, whose eyes were open without seeing, and whose eyes God wondrously closed, but opened again very soon, and to whom he ordered to bring his name before the nations, 
the kings, and the children of Israel. Like Paul, our eyes have been opened, and we should pray fervently for God to open the eyes of others through his Holy Spirit. Boldly proclaim his victory to everyone that we possibly can. Now, as a result of the Syrian soldiers uh, going back and sharing this message with their king, the text says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Kind of like how the, the big bad wolf, after landing in the boiling pot in the fireplace, never comes back and bothers the three little pigs again. In the same way, your sins, once God has dealt with them, cannot come back again. They are as far away from you as the east is from the west no matter who or where you were before. Because you have been rescued by the ultimate man of God, Jesus. The man who is in every way of God because he is himself God. He is our prophet and our priest and our king. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. When God's reign was, was hidden from our sight, Jesus came to us in the flesh to live and to die and to rise again in human history in the presence of thousands of eyewitnesses. In our gospel lesson, we heard Jesus tell his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. In Jesus, we have seen the image of the invisible God. And yet, in another very real way, we have not seen him. We have not seen Jesus in the flesh as the disciples did. But in John 20, after appearing to Thomas and destroying his doubts, the resurrected Jesus said this. Earlier he had said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We have not seen Jesus in the flesh, not yet, so we ask for the eyes of faith to see beyond the surface, to see every day the presence of God working protection in our lives, and we look forward to the day when we will see Jesus face to face. In fact, uh, that is the main thrust of the season of Advent, which begins next Sunday, and with that season, uh, we'll be beginning a, a new series called Gifts from the King, and Pastor Sean will be kicking that off for us. So I invite you to come back and join us for that as we uh, kick off a new year in the church. Until then, be confident and rejoice in the protection of God. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which transcends our understanding guard your hearts and your minds in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.